It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Who is John Bolton? He wants to go to war first. Uh, diplomacy second. Kind of hawkish uh, television uh, commentator who the president actually really liked. Who's a big proponent of the war in Iraq is a... A hawk. Who is Mr. Bolton and how will this matter? I don't want that moment where John Bolton's in the limousine with the president going, yeah, you can nuke him. Get him. Get him, John. Get him. They're, they they think you're a small guy. You should nuke him. Do it. Put your hand on the scanning screen and you'll go down in history with me. No, I know nothing about them, so I wouldn't be doing that. You cowardly bastard. You're not the voice of the people. I am the voice of the people. The people speak through me, not you. Now you put your goddamn hand on that scanning screen, or I'll hack it off and put it on for you. Do it! I think I can agree with that. Bing, like a rocket ship, except in the wrong direction. Bing, 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 bing. Mr. President, the missiles are flying. Bye-bye. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They're talking about nuclear war. Yeah. Have to push that button. Push that button. got to go. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 50 of Intercepted. The new National Security Council chief, that man right there, John Bolton, who, just like you, Geraldo, has a big mustache. I was going to say, Steve, it's about time that the, uh, the administration has brought to the uh, to, to its core a man with a mustache. Uh, it was, I was going to complain bitterly about it. I was this close as you can get to a mustachioed advisor to the president. Uh, Donald Trump is once again shaking up his administration. And the recent shuffles and new blood is an ominous sign that things actually can get worse, much worse. A veteran torturer and destroyer of evidence, Gina Haspel, has been nominated as CIA director. Mike Pompeo, who is a right-wing Christian supremacist, is now slated to become the U.S.'s top diplomat at the State Department. And last and perhaps most dangerous is John Bolton as National Security Advisor. That post, National Security Advisor, does not require Senate confirmation. And that means that barring some unusual intervention from Congress, John Bolton is going to be the chief voice in Trump's ear on foreign policy, national security, and war. I think the retaliation should not be proportionate 
I think it should be decidedly disproportionate. I continue to favor any steps that lead to the overthrow of the regime, and I think that should be official American policy. That would be military action Absolutely. against Iran. Absolutely. You've written an op-ed today in the New York Times, and here's the headline. To stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran. I'm afraid, given the circumstances, that's the only real option open to us now. John Bolton's official job is to sift through all of the intelligence and recommendations made by the CIA, the NSA, the military, other intelligence agencies, and tell the president what he should do. And we don't have to play guessing games about what John Bolton wants the president to do. John Bolton wants war. He wants destruction, chaos, imperialism. John Bolton wants to conduct first strike attacks against North Korea and Iran. He wants more, not fewer, nuclear weapons. He wants Israel's agenda to supersede that of a majority of Americans' agenda. He's a supporter of the Iranian exile terrorist group, the MEK, and he speaks at their fundraisers and rallies. There is only one answer here, to support legitimate opposition groups that favor overthrowing the military theocratic dictatorship in Tehran. It should be the declared policy of the United States of America and all of its friends to do just that at the earliest opportunity. Thank you very much. John Bolton goes to MEK rallies like a stoner following the Grateful Dead across the world. And just to underscore how devoted John Bolton is to this MEK terror group, just listen to what Rudy Giuliani, another MEK superfan, recently told the MEK at one of its events. You saw John Bolton. You remember John Bolton. He's going to be President Trump's national security advisor. You, you think he changed his mind? No, in fact, if anything, John Bolton has become more determined that, that, that there needs to be regime change in Iran, that the nuclear agreement needs to be burned. John Bolton is, in my analysis, the absolute most dangerous citizen of the United States to have as national security advisor at this moment in time. And I say that knowing that both Dick Cheney and Henry Kissinger are still technically alive. I say this because Bolton is an extremist with a lust for blood and war. Now, that's also true of Cheney and Kissinger. But unlike those two, this is John Bolton's one big chance, maybe ever. And Bolton will be serving a president that makes decisions on a whim, sometimes based on what the weatherman and sportscaster say on Fox and Friends. John Bolton's presence in the White House as national security advisor should thrust the nuclear countdown clock to just before midnight. The only diplomatic option left is to end the regime in North Korea by effectively having the South take it over. I think you've got to argue to China. That's not really diplomatic, <laughs> yeah, yeah, as far yes, as they're it, concerned. Well, that's their problem, not ours. Are we going to wind up with, with so many people's lives gone in South Korea, in Seoul, because we make that move. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about dead Americans? Now, John Bolton's appointment as the national security advisor comes as wall-to-wall -wall news coverage details the multiple alleged affairs that Donald Trump had. 
with Stormy Daniels. You are special. You remind me of my daughter. You know, uh, he's like, you're smart, beautiful, and a woman to be reckoned with. I like you. I like you. With Karen McDougal. He's very proud of um, Ivanka, as he should be. I mean, she's a brilliant woman. She's beautiful. She's, you know, that's his daughter, and he should be proud of her. Um, He said I was beautiful like her, and, you know, you're a smart girl, and there wasn't a lot of comparing, but there was some, yeah. It might be helpful to recall what happened the last time the country was in a similar situation with a sitting president, and that was Bill Clinton in the late 1990s. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. As the so-called Monica Lewinsky scandal intensified in 1998 and 1999, Bill Clinton seemed to find a new love for lobbing cruise missiles and authorizing bombing campaigns in Afghanistan, in Sudan, for 78 days, a U.S.-led NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, and, of course, Iraq in Operation Desert Fox, which Clinton authorized on the eve of the impeachment proceedings against him. Earlier today, I ordered American forces to strike Iraq. Our missiles sent the following message to Saddam Hussein. When you abuse your own people or threaten your neighbors, you must pay a price. Now, of course, all of these wars and bombings from Bill Clinton, they might just be a coincidence. I mean, Clinton was already a pretty belligerent hawk. But the timing of this uptick in military action coinciding with the impeachment proceedings and the Lewinsky story, it's tough to just dismiss it outright. And I bring this up because war is often used as the grand American distraction. And it works. Remember, war made Trump presidential, even in the eyes of liberal commentators. He became president of the United States in that moment, period. There are a lot of people who have a lot of reason to be frustrated with him, to be fearful of him, to be mad at him. But that was one of the most extraordinary moments you have ever seen in American politics, period. John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Gina Haspel, and yes, the adult in the room, General James Mattis at the Defense Department, that's a pretty frightening group to have at the center of the most incendiary and dangerous foreign policy and national security issues our country faces. It should be viewed as a code red threat to world stability. And my fear is that the more that Trump gets pummeled for these extramarital affairs and alleged abuse of women, the more distracted and dangerous he'll become. And the more John Bolton will be calling the shots. So you've you've called for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran and Syria. In the first two countries, we've had regime change. And obviously it's been I'd say a disaster. I think. No, we agree. no, I, I don't agree with that. And, and let me let me you don't think it's been a disaster. No. Later in the show, we're going to discuss John Bolton with a veteran CIA officer who served as President George H.W. Bush's national security briefer. And he's going to tell us about some interesting things that the former president told him about John Bolton and the neoconservatives. But first, while all of this attention is on the allegations Stormy Daniels made in her 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper, there are a few important points to keep in mind. 
First, if you look at Bill Clinton's impeachment and how it got there, what was it about? Well, it was about lying in a sworn deposition in a case involving his accuser, Paula Jones. It took Jones's lawyers four years, but eventually they got their deposition. The person being deposed touching or kissing the breast of another person would fall within the definition. That's correct, sir. And you testified that you didn't have sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky in the Jones deposition under that definition, That's correct? correct, sir. And it was the lies that Clinton told during that deposition that ultimately resulted in the impeachment proceedings. There are several paths that could result in Donald Trump being deposed, either by Stormy Daniels' attorney or by the famed women's rights lawyer, Gloria Allred. Allred has a client named Summer Zervos, and she's suing President Trump not for sexual assault or for harassment, but for defamation. Zervos is a former contestant on Trump's show The Apprentice. And she alleges that Trump sexually assaulted her on multiple occasions. But Zervos never went public. In fact, she says she was still trying to determine if forced kissing and groping was just how Trump said hello to women. Despite the fact that she says that Trump groped her, she continued to view him as a possible mentor. She wanted to work with him. Zervo says that she's a Republican and that she had never planned to sue him or to go public with her story. But then this audio, which was recorded on the Access Hollywood bus, came out. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. Zervo says that when she heard that tape, she was horrified at how much it described what Trump had actually done to her. Yet she still did not speak out. And then Trump was asked about that tape on the Access Hollywood bus during a presidential debate. I hate it, but it's locker room talk, and it's one of those things. I will knock the hell out of ISIS. We're going to defeat ISIS. ISIS happened a number of years ago in a vacuum that was left so, because of bad judgment. And I will tell you, I will take care of ISIS. So Mr. And Trump, we should get onto much more important things and much bigger things. Just for the record, though, are you saying that what you said on that bus 11 years ago, that you did not actually kiss women without consent or grope women without consent? I have great respect for women. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. So for the record, said, you're saying you never did that? things that, frankly, you... You hear these things, I said, and I was embarrassed by it, but I have tremendous respect for women. Have you ever done those things? have respect for me, and I will tell you, no, I have not. It was that denial, that comment from Donald Trump that spurred Summer Zervos to speak out about her experiences with him. I waited for about 15 minutes until Mr. Trump emerged. He had his suit on. I stood up. And he came to me and started kissing me open-mouthed as he was pulling me towards him. I walked away and I sat down in a chair. He was on a left seat across from me and I made an attempt at conversation. He then asked me to sit next to him. I complied. He then grabbed my shoulder and began kissing me again very aggressively and placed his hand on my breast. I pulled back and walked to another part of the room. He then walked up grabbed my hand, and walked me into the bedroom. I walked out. 
He then turned me around and said, let's lay down and watch some telly telly. He put me in an embrace, in an embrace and I tried to push him away. I pushed his chest to put space between us, and I said, come on, man, get real. He repeated my words back to me, get real, as he began thrusting his genitals. He tried to kiss me again with my hand still on his chest, and I said, dude, you're tripping right now. Attempting to make it clear, I was not interested. He said, what, what do you want? And I said, I came to have dinner. He said, okay, we'll have dinner. After Zervos went public, Donald Trump began to systematically label her and all of his other accusers liars. And worse, he attacked their appearances, impugned their motives, called them liars, liars, liars. These claims are all fabricated. They're pure fiction and they're outright lies. These events never, ever happened and the people that said them meekly fully understand. You take a look at these people, you study these people, and you'll understand also. Which brings us to why this case matters and why I'm bringing it up on this show. It may well be the most dangerous of all of these legal cases for Donald Trump. Zervos is suing Trump for defamation. She is charging that the president of the United States arguably the most powerful man in the world, has used his galaxy-sized soapbox to defame her over and over and over. Zervos is represented by Gloria Allred, and she's already had multiple battles with Trump stretching back years. Jenna entered this competition and gave the pageant her time, her best efforts, and her money. She did not think for one moment that what she might have looked like at birth would be relevant. She did not ask Mr. Trump to prove that he is a naturally born man or to see the photos of his birth to view his anatomy to prove that he was male. It made no difference to her. Why should it have made a difference to him? And it's not just Gloria Allred's clients. Trump also engaged in misogynist attacks on Gloria Allred years before he ran for office. Gloria talked about uh, wanting to see your birth pictures. If you want to give us one of those baby pictures, we'll put it up on the site. Boom. Well, I may do that. I just want to know how much will Gloria pay me? Because if the payment is enough, I might just do it. Boy, will she be impressed. <laughs> oh, Donald, thank you so much for Have joining us. Have a good time, us. Harvey. You're the best. So long. Thanks. The Summer Zervos case has at its core the question of whether Trump's statements that she is a liar are true or false. And because Trump lumped Zervos in with all the other accusers, all of their testimony could become very relevant to this case. As part of her suit, Allred filed a subpoena against the Trump campaign to maintain, quote, all documents concerning any woman who asserted that Donald J. Trump touched her inappropriately. Trump's lawyers moved to have this case dismissed. They said the president can't be sued in state court. But last week, a judge in New York rejected Trump's appeal, and the judge cited Clinton v. Jones as precedent. In her ruling, the judge wrote, no one is above the law. And she stated, quote, nothing in the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution even suggests that the president cannot be called to account before a state court 
for wrongful conduct that bears no relationship to any federal executive responsibility. So that case is moving forward. And presumably, so too will the discovery phase in that case. So unless Trump's people succeed in getting it thrown out by a different court, Donald Trump and his campaign may have to hand over a lot of documents. And he may need to face the testimony of his accusers. And he may have to sit for a deposition with Gloria Allred. And if that happens, Donald Trump will almost certainly lie. And then we have the prospect of perjury. By the court saying this case can now move forward, you're opening up the door to discovery, meaning there are a whole lot of other issues that can now potentially come in. Uh, There are even everything from possible tax returns to other women. Remember, she basically says that he kissed her and groped her, but that's not what the case is about. It's about defamation. It's about him saying it's not true. When he was making those comments, he was talking about a bunch of other women as well. And so those other women could become relevant in the context of this case. And that's why for him, I think this case becomes much more perilous than anything else we're talking about. This case and some of the others against Trump have the potential to actually draw blood. And they could lead to criminal charges against the sitting president. Gloria Allred has been very tight-lipped about the Zervos case since it first was announced, likely because she knows the stakes are potentially very high and any mistakes could be fatal. Gloria Allred also represents other women who said that they were abused by Trump. She is a very busy woman these days. Gloria Allred moves from TV studio to TV studio, network to network. There's also a really fascinating documentary about her that's currently on Netflix. It's called Seeing Allred. Well, in the midst of her running all around earlier this week, I managed to catch Gloria Allred on the phone at the end of a very long day. Gloria, thanks for taking the time to speak to us here on Intercepted. Okay, thank you. Uh, So first, I just wanted to say, obviously, and you've been asked a lot about this recently, the Stormy Daniels uh, story is very much front and center and sort of secondarily, you have the Karen McDougal uh, story. But a case that you have, in addition to your involvement in in sort of the broader issue of women coming forward and telling the stories of what happened to them at the hands of Donald Trump, but your case of Summer Zervos. Yeah, I can't comment on Summer Zervos. I'm so sorry. You you can't say anything at all about it, the case? It's not. I can't. It's a defamation case, but I can't. I, I just have no comment on that at this time. So so parallel to that, there also is the defamation case now that Stormy Daniels' legal team has filed. What's your analysis of that? Yeah, well, what happened was they've amended the existing lawsuit that Stormy Daniels has filed in reference to the settlement agreement that she entered into with the president's attorney, Michael Cohen, and a shell corporation, and it appears also with uh, with Mr. Trump using a pseudonym, that she entered into a non-disclosure agreement, a confidential settlement, and now she is seeking to void that settlement to make to have it be, in other words, not enforced, because that settlement would require that she have to arbitrate her claim, not in, in a confidential arbitration rather than in a courtroom, in a public courtroom. And in addition, that agreement that she entered into in which she was paid $130,000 uh, 
to keep confidential her allegations of what she alleges Mr. Trump did to her and with her. Um, You know, she wants to be able to talk. She did do that 60 Minutes interview. For sitting here talking to me today, you could be fined a million dollars. I mean, aren't you taking a big risk? I am. I guess I'm not 100% sure on why you're doing this. Because it was very important to me to be able to defend myself. Is part of talking wanting to set the record straight? 100%. Clearly, there have been breaches of the settlement. Her attorney's position would be that Michael Cohen's breached. His position is that Stormy Daniels and perhaps her attorney have breached. This is all going to have to be sorted out somewhere in a court of law. But the defamation claim uh, is something that has been added to her existing lawsuit. It's not a separate lawsuit. Got it. Um, Does that, in your view, open her up to questions of her credibility? Because they're going to say, oh, look, she has this pattern of of lies. And, you know, she explained her own history on 60 Minutes. But does it expose her potentially to an effective counterattack from Trump's team? There's no question that there's a counter, you know, response to what she has filed. And of course, the president's attorney is alleging that she's breached the lawsuit that she owes $20 million or that they're going to rather seek $20 million because the settlement agreement, which she signed, provides for a million dollars for each breach. So they're alleging that she's breached 20 times. Now, my experience is that requiring a million dollars for each breach, even if a breach could be proven, would be considered excessive and that no court is going to state or require that even if there's a breach proven that you breach, that you pay a million dollars for each breach. That's considered excessive. It would be substantially reduced even if the agreement were enforced. So, you know, that's an interesting aspect of it. Of course, her attorney is alleging that Mr. Trump never signed it, that therefore it's not enforceable, that that place for his signature was blank. He was using a pseudonym, not his own name anyway. Um, But then again, the argument by the Trump lawyers is, look, she accepted the money. This is one of the arguments. So there was, you know, a, 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 a settlement agreement and she did accept the money. There's no question that she did. And of course, they would like it. Trump's attorneys would like it to be an arbitration that would be confidential Stormy Daniels and her attorney would like this all to be resolved in an open court of law. What's the likelihood of uh, of Trump sitting for a deposition? Because you, you remember when you had the Clinton-Paula Jones situation, the, the sort of political strategy of the Clintons was to try to, you know, legally kick it down the road until after the reelection. In the face of their, the Jones lawyers, the people that were questioning me, in the face of their illegal leaks, their constant, unrelenting, illegal leaks in a lawsuit that I knew and that by the time this deposition and this discovery started, they knew was a bogus suit on the law and a bogus suit on the facts. Is it realistic to think that Trump could end up sitting for a deposition with you or another attorney in any of these cases? Well, you know, in the Stormy Daniels case, which is what we're discussing right now, uh, if it's an arbitration, there's limited discovery. And that means that, you know, we'll have to see whether the arbitrator would allow that or not. If it's in a court of law, 
it depends. You know, there may be a motion to dismiss the defamation claim. It may be a motion to dismiss other parts of it. So first, I think you have to get to the legal issue as to whether this case can be pursued or not. And and then if so, where? And then we'll see what courts allow. But I mean, it may be that at least Michael Cohen has to sit for a deposition. Whether President Trump will remains to be determined. Have you ever seen anything like this, uh, their version of the story, which is that Michael Cohen just sort of sitting around decides to, uh, you know, get a, a home equity loan to pay for this non-disclosure agreement and it wasn't Trump's idea, he just did it? You know, have you ever heard of anything like that? Well, to say that that is, uh, uh, you know, unusual is probably the understatement of the year. No, I've never seen or heard of an attorney himself putting out that amount of money in order to persuade or entice or have some other party, an opposing party, agree or agree to keep confidential information about the attorney's client. People don't, you know, there are rules and, you know, again, about attorney conduct that must be followed. In addition, um, I mean, why would any attorney do that? The other thing is, this is more than that. This this could potentially be an election law violation because it, there are uh, experts on fe- the Federal Election Commission and the law that governs what candidates for president can do, and that amount might be considered to be a donation to Trump's campaign since the amount was paid right before the election where he was running for president and it would exceed the amount that any individual is permitted to donate uh to uh you know or on behalf of a candidate so that means the federal election commission is going to be investigating this which could take a long time but it is potentially a federal election commission violation if proven and there's a subpoena for campaign records, um, and the campaign is saying they're going to produce them. A- have you heard anything from them about those records? Yeah, I don't know anything about that, but Michael Cohen, Trump's attorney, has said that neither the campaign nor the Trump organization reimbursed him for what he paid. I didn't hear him say that Trump himself had not reimbursed him. He didn't say anything about that. He also didn't say whether if anyone else had reimbursed him. And so we don't know if anybody else did or if they did, who. So these are questions that remain to be answered. Do you, do you see, I mentioned the, the Clinton situation earlier, do you see parallels uh, beyond the very obvious? But I mean, is, is there a parallel situation right now with what you as the attorneys have in front of you with the White House's deliberations now? Well, I mean, I do think that you know, that President Trump is likely to do everything and anything that it would be legal to not testify under oath in a deposition. I don't, that's not what he would want to do, I would think, if he could avoid it. He's done that in, in other cases prior to his being elected president. And they thought I made uh, statements that were inflammatory in some form, and uh, they. I don't know if they sent out a notice. I, th- I think what was maybe worse than sending out a notice, they went to the press. I don't understand why, uh, why they did this. I'm running I don't think that's what he wants to do now, especially about his relationships 
with any women, especially those women he might have had sexual relationships with, if he did, while he was married. I mean, he is alleged now by Stormy Daniels to have had sex with her not long after the birth of his child. He is alleged to have had an affair with Karen McDougal, again, after his little baby was born. The only regret I have about the relationship that I had with Donald was the fact that he was married. If he weren't married, I wouldn't have any regrets because he treated me very kind. He was very respectful. As I told you, it was a good relationship while it happened. So this is serious from Melania's point of view is my guess, embarrassing to her, probably upsetting to her. I don't know what she knew when she knew it or what kind of marriage they have, or whether she was okay with that. But, you know, this is serious. It's embarrassing. And and I've seen polls all day that show that the majority who watched the interview found that Stormy Daniels was credible. And also that Karen McDougal in her interview was credible. Now, Karen McDougal, you know, said that, you know, that both she and, and Trump said to each other that they loved each other and that I mean, she portrayed it as a romantic relationship. In other words, not just one about sex. Um, the uh, Stormy Daniels alleges she had sexual activity with Mr. Trump once, and she didn't find him attractive, and she doesn't. She didn't say anything about being in love with him or that he was in love with her or that there was anything romantic about it. So um, that's a very different situation than what Karen McDougal has described. You know, p- part of why I wanted to um, talk to you was to ask you this uh, this final question: If if you were empowered to uh, depose Trump based on all of these cases, not just the ones that you're involved with, and you had everything that you know and those attorneys know right now, do you think that your deposition would result in, in the beginning of the end for his administration if if you were to depose him in that manner? Well, you know, anybody and everybody has a duty to testify under oath if they are subpoenaed in the United States, if they are properly subpoenaed. So all I can say is I always assume the best, but if they do not testify truthfully, in other words, if they lie about a material fact, then that's perjury, and there are significant consequences for perjury. So would President Trump testify truthfully under oath? I certainly hope so. There are those who allege that in the past he has not testified truthfully under oath. So he has a record while he's been in the White House of lying and lying and lying about many issues. Would he, of course, he wasn't under oath when he misstated certain things to the public. And I can't predict what the president will do. But, uh, you know, there are going to be consequences if he doesn't take that oath seriously. All right, Gloria Allred, thank you very much uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule. Anytime. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Jeremy. Gloria Allred is a pioneering women's rights attorney. She's hated by many powerful men. She represents Summer Zervos in her defamation case against Donald Trump, and Allred may actually get to depose the president. She is the subject of the Netflix documentary, Seeing Allred.
Well, what Gloria Allred was just discussing is part of the context of the turmoil in the Trump administration that John Bolton is soon going to be joining. Not only is Bolton dying to go to war with Iran, North Korea, and on and on and on, he's also been a very aggressive cold warrior and an uber hawk on Russia. That issue is going to be really interesting to watch unfold, particularly in light of the Mueller investigation and of Trump's recent move that he conducted in coordination with the UK and European Union countries to expel Russian diplomats. For more on John Bolton becoming the national security advisor, I'm joined now by Ray McGovern. He spent 27 years in the CIA, where he specialized in the Soviet Union. McGovern was also the national security advisor for George H.W. Bush and often prepared or presented the president's daily briefing. Ray McGovern also chaired the National Intelligence Estimates. And since leaving the CIA, Ray McGovern helped start Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. In 2006, in protest of the CIA's torture program, Ray McGovern returned his Intelligence Commendation Medal. McGovern has been a fierce critic of both the Trump administration and the U.S. intelligence community's assertion that Vladimir Putin ordered the hacking of the DNC and other targets. Ray McGovern, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. Ray, let's start with uh, the immediate news of John Bolton in a matter of days taking over as the national security advisor. Your analysis. <laughs> Where to start? I would say that John Bolton deserves the uh, moniker of the Archdeacon of Neocondom. Back in the day, uh, back when I was working at CIA in the 60s and 70s, we didn't talk about neocons. We talked about crazies. And uh, we watched George H.W. Bush be very careful in keeping the, the crazies, in quotes, in positions in government, uh, deputy assistant secretary and so forth, where they had a prestigious job, but they couldn't do great harm to the country. And so when George Bush Jr. came in, what did I see? Oh my God, I saw all these crazies. Now, I have to tell you that this was uniformly accepted as the word for these folks. Matter of fact, I wrote to my friend, George H.W. Bush, and I said, you know, would you please uh, tell your son? This was uh, actually in January of 2003 when it looked like we we're going to have a war that was not warranted and based on phony intelligence. I said, please tell your son why it was that you kept the crazies like John Bolton at arm's length. Just tell him that. And he wrote back and he said, uh, well, thanks for your letter. Uh, please don't worry about the, quote, crazies, end quote, that they have undue influence on my son. My son is great, so don't worry about it. Yeah, well, yeah. That was the 22nd of uh, January, 2003, two months before the invasion of Iraq. Now, why do I say all that? I say all that because John Bolton was one of the prime movers behind that invasion, prime movers in destroying or so distorting the intelligence as to, quote, justify such invasion. And there he was. He was the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control. Now, the next thing we knew, under his influence, George W. Bush took the extreme step of saying, ah, this anti-ballistic missile treaty, 
which, by the way, everyone acknowledges was the bedrock for strategic stability since 1972 when it was signed, uh, we, think, we, we think we ought to ditch that. Today I have given formal notice to Russia in accordance with the treaty that the United States of America is withdrawing from this almost 30-year-old treaty. I have concluded the ABM treaty hinders our government's ability to develop ways to protect our people from future terrorists or rogue state missile attacks. Now, that was a big, big deal that nobody really realized at the time. But now we realize it because Putin's speech on the 1st of March indicates that all these new weapons systems, some of them pretty menacing, were developed as a direct result of the fact that the strategic stability that was introduced in 72, and I was in Moscow for the signing of that and felt very strongly about it, uh, was simply uh, eliminated by the fact that uh, Bolton and uh, George W. Bush and Cheney decided they didn't need it anymore. It goes like a meteorite to its target, boasted Putin, like a fireball. Then, in reference to the United States pulling out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, Putin added ominously, they kept ignoring us, so listen to us now. That's why it's very significant that uh, somebody foisted Bolton on Trump. I, I don't think Trump is really aware of how things work in, in Washington, but it's the same thing that happened to George H.W. Bush when he was director of central intelligence. A foisted on him was something called Team B, which reassessed all the good work that the intelligence community had done on Soviet strategic systems, made them much more menacing, and uh, actually turned out to be quite incorrect, but uh, skewed all the intelligence for quite some time. That was foisted on George H.W. Bush's cardinal mistake, in my view, and now we have Bolton coming in at a time when, <laughs> despite the, quote, instructions, end quote, of his advisors, President Trump has congratulated Putin on his election victory and, worse still, said, we ought to talk about arms control. Well, I see a lot of this stuff as a direct result of the danger that people who profiteer on arms control, both in, in the industrial sector and in government, are, are really wanting to make sure that Trump does not have this kind of flexibility. How better to do it than putting the tried and true John Bolton to put a stop to any of this negotiating with Russia. Well, and Ray, of course, the national security advisor is a very powerful position, influential position, but it also is not subject to Senate confirmation. Explain what the role of the national security advisor is and the kinds of authority and power that Bolton will have. Well, it's really hard to draw direct comparisons between what went before and the, uh, the Trump administration. But what can be said is that it really all depends on the personal relationship between the national security assistant and the president. Bolton will come in, and his job really is to sort through what the departments, you know, what defense and state and CIA are saying and what they're suggesting, and uh, boil it down so the president can either read it or be briefed on it and make a decision. Now, now in Bolton, you have somebody that 
far longer than anybody expected, he advertised this yellow cake uranium sought ostensibly by Iraq in deepest, darkest Africa in Niger, which was all based on, on a forgery, which he knew about. They don't skate? Fine. I don't even want to say this. The mother bought some yellow cake, okay, in Africa. He went to Africa and he bought yellow cake. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure, bitch. I got the CIA and he was pursuing that as late as December uh, 2002 against the intelligence community. He cut them out. So you can imagine uh, what kind of uh, very tailored, uh, very self-described, uh, tailored by Bolton, quote, intelligence, end quote, the president's going to get. So unless the president uh, turns elsewhere, and where can he turn uh, if uh, Gina Haspel becomes the head of the CIA? my God, if Pompeo becomes head of state? I've never seen it so bad, Jeremy. I, <laughs> I, I'm sort of breathless. Uh, so you have Bolton in a key position, and, and it will be how much trust Trump puts in Bolton, and I think he was... Uh... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Probably uh, forced to accept Bolton, just as Team B was foisted upon the first George Bush. Uh, so maybe maybe he'll come to his senses and say, "Well, this guy, for example, you know, McCain said that the Russian interference, so-called, in the 2016 election, that that was an act of war." Now, what has Bolton said? Oh, he's gone one better. He said, "Quote: It's a true act of war." End quote. Now just so no one misunderstands. Do the Russians hack? Sure, they hack. Everybody hacks. The big point here is, did the Russians hack into the Democratic National Committee computers and give that information to WikiLeaks? And the answer to that is, there is no proof of that. As a matter of fact, there's forensic evidence that some of our veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, uh, to which uh, Bill Binney and... Uh, at Loomis, both of whom were technical directors at NSA, they've poured over forensic evidence which, which indicate that the, the big event that people advertised with Guccifer and everyone else was not a hack of any kind. The download speed indicates that it was an inside job a download onto a thumb drive because the speed of the Internet could not handle the speed with which that data was downloaded. So it was spurious to begin with. Did someone hack into that? No. The Russians? No. Nobody hacked into that. And we can prove it. The only problem is we can't get into the public media. The saving grace is that somehow or other, Donald Trump was shown our findings, and he 
he ordered uh, Mike Pompeo, the director of the CIA, to ask Bill Binney to come in and have, for, have a chat. Now, what was that all about? On the 24th of October, that happened. It was bizarre. And Bill came in, and by his, he, was, he told me, and he told the press, his, uh, and Pompeo says, so, you know, the president asked me to, to talk to you. Well, what do you have to say? And he said, well, with all due respect, sir, your people are lying to you. I said, what? How can they? How can they? He said, you know, if they're telling you that the Russians hacked into the DNC, they're lying. And I know because I created the system, and I know the physics, and I know the, the principle of fluid dynamics, which, which makes it impossible for that thing to have been downloaded from a remote site. It was an inside job. I mean, the point that I agree with you on a thousand percent is that the onus is on the U.S. government to prove this to the American people because this is so serious that it can lead to a war stance. And certainly a lot of politicians, most of them right now Democrats, seem to want this sort of new Cold War mentality. But I, I sort of look at it a little bit of a different with a different approach than you, Ray. I look at it as the United States, China, Russia, Israel, all of these countries are constantly trying to hack each other's systems. Of course, the United States spies on uh, even its allies. And again, I say this with the caveat that there is no documented proof that Russia was behind this. There's, you know, there's a lot of smoke. There's allegations. There are forensic reports that some of them have very dubious actors involved with them. But let's just say for a minute that Russia, like the United States, is doing hacking operations. My understanding was that the fingerprints that were left on the DNC operation that have been analyzed are very similar to the fingerprints that were left on a much broader attempt to target a variety of influential Americans, including military officials, people with top secret clearances, spouses of CIA and, and military people. And to me, the question becomes, if this was all part of the same operation and obtaining the DNC stuff was a part of that. The question becomes why that particular set of documents was released. But my my sense is that whoever did this has an, a lot more information about a variety of American institutions and individuals. Again, this goes against your thesis that this was a leak or an inside job and not a hack. But I do think that there's an, another possibility, which is that there was a much wider field at play here, and we're just focused on one minuscule portion of it because of the election. But I want to leave that for, you know, to continue this at a different time, because I really want to finish up on, on Bolton. Are you concerned that Trump is going to use the kind of tried and true epic distraction of war in the same way that Clinton did when the Lewinsky scandal was blowing up? He seemed to all of a sudden find a variety of countries that just needed some cruise missiles from the United States at that exact moment. Well, you know, he was uh, described by various and sundry as acting presidential when he fired those 59 cruise missiles into Syria. So it's a danger. I would say that the real danger is uh, letting these folks do crazy things vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And uh, Bolton it could not be anybody more dangerous than John Bolton, given his record of distorting intelligence, of uh, concocting and creating intelligence to suit his worldview, 
his worldview is a very dangerous worldview, and we have uh, his experience with respect to Iraq and lots of other things to confirm that view. What did you make, Ray, of the Central Intelligence Agency on its Twitter feed openly advocating and bragging and heaping praise on Gina Haspel. I, I, I haven't seen something like that before. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the CIA is, is not supposed to be engaged in domestic propaganda. Yeah, the old ethos where we tell it like it is and we don't get involved in politicization, that seems to have gone by the board. And if Haspel is confirmed, and we're working very hard to prevent that, witness our last VIPS memo, if she's confirmed, you know, where is the president to look when he wants the, the straight poop on this or that issue in the world? He's not going to get it from Bolton. He's not going to get it from Pompeo. Uh, is he going to get it from Haspel? Uh, even less. So, so he's left on his own. He's got some instincts that I should make clear. I think he's the worst president the United States ever had. And I think we should get rid of him, depose him, but not on a lie, okay? And what I see on this Russiagate is a whole pack of lies, very similar, you know, very similar to the lies before the invasion of Iraq. Ray McGovern, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me here on Intercepted. You're most welcome. Ray McGovern is one of the co-founders of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. He was in the CIA for 27 years, where he often prepared the presidential daily brief. You heard me mention the presidential daily brief a few times earlier with Ray McGovern. That's the daily intelligence presentation that is culled from uh, assets around the world, from the military, from U.S. intelligence agencies, and given to the president every day. And every president can choose what format they want to receive that briefing in. We've heard reports that Trump likes it with pictures and bullet points. And some have even alleged that the briefers try to mention Trump by name in points that they really want him to read because they know he's going to go straight to the mention of his name. Who knows? But the presidential daily brief is an extremely sensitive document, and it contains information that could be very dangerous if placed in the wrong hands. By the way, I include John Bolton's hands in that assessment and Trump's for that matter. But that is what it is. But what about Jared Kushner? He can't even get a top secret security clearance and has to sort of get backdoored by Trump into reviewing classified intelligence. According to a report published last week by The Intercept, Jared Kushner allegedly shared information from the presidential daily brief with the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And that information was allegedly shared as Salman was in the midst of a coup of sorts, targeting his political opponents and other people that he deemed problematic to his effort to snatch power and ultimately take the throne one day. According to that report, Kushner may have given the names of some Saudi opponents to Mohammed bin Salman just before Salman had dozens of Saudi royals and military officers imprisoned in the Ritz-Carlton. One of those individuals was reportedly gruesomely tortured to death. 60 Minutes and Thomas Friedman of the New York Times have been fawning over the new crown prince, and a whole magazine celebrating the awesomeness and modernity of Mohammed bin Salman hit newsstands across the U.S. this week. 
It was produced by Trump's buddies at the National Enquirer, by the way. And Kushner is said to have a deep bond with the Saudi royal, staying up until all hours of the night with him, chatting and also exchanging messages on WhatsApp, which is not an official communication tool of the U.S. government the last time I checked. And this isn't just a recent thing with concerns about Jared Kushner. A couple weeks ago, The Washington Post reported that former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and the outgoing National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, quote, expressed early concern that Kushner was freelancing U.S. foreign policy. According to The Post, Tillerson once asked staffers in frustration, who is the Secretary of State here? This story has the potential to really blow up or to emerge as an important part of the Mueller investigation, not just because of the presidential daily brief issue, but also because Mohammed bin Salman has reportedly been running around bragging that he has Kushner, quote, in my pocket. All of this may well be related to Kushner's real estate business and the 666 Fifth Avenue project. And it may turn out that private financial interests resulted in drastic U.S. policy decisions in the Middle East. For more on this, I'm joined now by my Intercept colleagues, Ryan Grimm and Alex Emmons. They broke this story with Clayton Swisher. The story is called Saudi Crown Prince Boasted That Jared Kushner Was in His Pocket. Ryan, Alex, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Ryan, let's start with you. Uh, the, The bigger picture of Jared Kushner's relationship with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, give us a sense of sort of the, the big picture here. So on the political end, uh, Jared Kushner was tasked with you know all sorts of things by his father-in-law, uh, Donald Trump, when he came to the White House. Uh, but in particular, it was creating Middle East peace. He has believed that if he could get uh, Saudi Arabia on board with some type of a peace plan, then that's the way he'd be able to jam it down the Palestinian side. On a more personal level, his father, Charles Kushner, is a real estate developer. The Kushner Companies is the is a firm that that Jared Kushner still owns a major major piece of and ran right up until he he entered the White House. And you know, if you run one of these big real estate companies, you need an influx of a couple billion dollars of cash every couple of years to continuously refinance your properties. And the places you go for that sort of money are China, Russia, and the Gulf, effectively. There may be a few other places, Malaysia, here or there. But so he had a lot of kind of personal relationships throughout the Gulf through his efforts to solicit cash for the Kushner companies. So both of those streams kind of came together in creating his relationship with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. And Alex, talk about that relationship. When do we know of that the two of them started to Uh, appear to be closer than just kind of a liaison from the United States uh, speaking with an emissary from Saudi Arabia. It seems like there's a closeness to their relationship that's different than just Jared is talking to him about Middle East peace. Right. I would say it started not long after the election. Obviously, when you're trying to create peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you have to involve a lot more people than just the Israelis and the Palestinians. You have to go to regional partners. Through through Jared Kushner's mission, he stepped into a really tumultuous situation in Saudi Arabia's history. Saudi Arabia has been a stable country for a long time because the succession of kings went from brother to brother to brother to brother. And so there wasn't much of a contest for the throne. But now we're talking about the succession passing from one generation to another. I think 
this ambitious now Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman really saw an opportunity with Trump's election to make a move. And last June, we saw the replacement of the former Crown Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, extremely controversial in Saudi Arabia and, and throughout the world, and MBS really taking his place, the king appointing his son the successor over the current heir. And what's unusual about this is that the U.S. Is, the U.S. has had a relationship with Saudi Arabia for a very long time—a military alliance, uh, an economic alliance. But what's very unusual about this is that we we have the Trump administration backing a specific crown prince, uh, someone who is ruthless and brutal and willing to torture his own family members, someone who's willing to use starvation as a weapon of war in Yemen. And the U.S. is essentially uh, through Jared Kushner saying, "This is our guy." And Ryan, what do we know uh, about Jared Kushner's unannounced trip to Riyadh in late October last year? We know now, in the months before Kushner went over there, he had access to some previously unreported U.S. intelligence that had identified uh, a set of political dissidents back in Saudi Arabia as as the as the political situation was was unfolding there. The intelligence services had had identified that there were. Uh, some elements that were uncomfortable with the way uh, that MBS was uh, rising and, and consolidating power. Then you have in early November, and The Intercept was the first outlet to uh, report this in English, they start sending dozens of members of uh, the Saudi royal family into a very uh, sort of high-class, five-star prison of sorts. They use the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh to house all of these members of the the royal family in the midst of this crackdown. What was going on in Washington at the time? And we're, we're now getting to the thrust of your story. What happened regarding Jared Kushner and the president's daily briefing? So we know that uh, in the president's daily briefing, there were the, the names of some Saudi royal figures and other elites uh, who were said to uh, have questionable loyalty to MBS. And uh, those people were were rounded up in this in this crackdown. And we know that after MBS met with Jared Kushner, he told people close to him, including uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, effectively the kind of ruler of the UAE, that Kushner had uh, shared in, intel with him, including some of these names. Alex, why would Jared Kushner, who has struggled to, uh, to get a security clearance and doesn't appear to be able to get a, uh, a top secret SCI uh, security clearance, what was he even doing accessing the sensitive information or being briefed uh, or or having the information shared with him from the PDB? It seems like in the early months of the Trump administration, it was kind of a free-for-all for who got access to the most sensitive uh, information that was shared with the White House. I mean, obviously, since his security clearance has been downgraded, um, but it, it just goes to show we have someone who is naive, uh, never had a government job before, whose company's actively soliciting money from foreign governments. That's obviously a sort of intelligence liability of the highest order. The CIA would see someone like that in a foreign country as a tremendous opportunity to cultivate a sorcerer and influencer. So it's someone who, who's very high risk getting access to, to very sensitive information. And I think anyone who has been through the vetting process to get a security clearance would tell you that. Ryan, the the Saudis have their own uh, muhabarat, their secret police, their internal intelligence services. There is a tremendous amount of Stasi-like spying on uh, their own citizens in Saudi Arabia. Why does Mohammed bin Salman need Jared Kushner to give him names of people that probably were already in the crosshairs of 
the sort of coup regime among the royals. Right. And, and in some ways, that's that's been the uh, been the response from from his camp. And, and I asked a few people that while we were while re- we were reporting this out. And there's sort of different questions. Like there's the question of whether or not he needs the information. The answer to that is probably pretty clearly no. But then there's the question of what is the effect of of getting it? And it's 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 to be able to say, look, the United States is with me. Like there is an internal struggle going on here. And the son-in-law of the president of the United States is is actively helping me uh, in in this effort. So if you think you're going to find some aid and comfort uh, from your, your human rights champions over there in Washington, I've got something else coming for you because, uh, j- you know, because Jared and I are in this together. That would be the message that he'd be sending and that, and that he'd be taking by either receiving that information or by telling other people that that he had gotten it from him. Right. And the, and, and Alex, the stakes uh, are raised quite substantially, even if the Saudis didn't need the information. The fact that uh, or the idea that Jared Kushner nonetheless gave them information that it aided this crackdown, the stakes of all of that uh, are raised a lot higher when you take the case of General Ali al-Qahtani, uh, who was reportedly tortured uh, to death at the Ritz-Carlton. Talk about uh, what happened to him and the, what we know. Um, severely tortured to death. According to the New York Times, his dead body uh, showed signs of burn marks from electrocution all over. So we're talking about incredible coercion and torture going on in the Ritz-Carlton. Um, I think what we're seeing play out uh, over U.S.-Saudi relations in the past year has been MBS trying to feel out what he can get away with from the U.S. I don't think it's a coincidence that we've seen this palace coup and massive crackdown be launched not under Obama, who almost certainly would have taken some kind of action to at least get it to slow down, but under Trump, who seems to be enthusiastically sharing this uh, brutal crown prince because he thinks he's on his team. Also, I don't think there's anybody that would look at the kind of the Saudi political economy and say that it didn't need some type of a corruption uh, crackdown. But the case of the Major General Katani is is, in, is a telling one because he himself was not an owner of any major businesses. He was not really implicated in any way that I know of in any type of corruption probe. He was much more of a, a government figure who... Uh, apparently wound up on the on the wrong side of this of this dispute but it's very hard to say to to pinpoint any kind of corruption related reason that he would have been uh facing interrogation set aside the way that the interrogation played out in this horrific way that wound up with him dead what was he even doing there to begin with what does your reporting tell you about what mohammed bin salman has been saying about jared kushner the, the the phrase he used for uh, among a lot of people was uh, that he's quote unquote in his pocket. He sat down with the Washington Post when he came here recently for an off the record uh, chit chat, and the only thing he did put on the record was a denial. He said, "No, no, 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 that's not true. You know, we have a we have a very good relationship. I do not believe that he is uh, in my pocket." But yeah, that that's the way he's been phrasing his his relationship with with Jared. Well, and Alex it created this uh this kind of strange competition it seemed between Mohammed bin Zayed of the Emirates, uh the crown prince of 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 the United Arab Emirates and Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, both sort of trying to take credit for uh the downfall of Rex Tillerson at the State Department. 
I think uh, in a big way, though, MBZ and MBS, uh, as they're commonly referred to, are kind of on the same team when it comes to stuff like that. Uh, You know, as Ryan talked about earlier, the UAE has actually really shepherded and championed the rise of MBS, I think in large part because they think they can control them, because they think that uh, then they're the biggest voice coming out of the Gulf. And so I think that that MBZ and MBS are sort of acting in in unison on this. And and our reporting shows that MBS, uh, you know, bragged about this to MBZ, that he's one of his closest confidants and that they're all on the same page uh, about the stuff that MBS is doing to other members of the royal family in Saudi Arabia. So so in a lot of ways, I think MBS is closer to them, MBZ, than than a lot of other top officials in Saudi Arabia. Well, and, and I want to talk for a moment about the rejection by Qatar of this real estate investment deal for 666 Fifth Avenue, the property that Jared Kushner bought in in, in 07 for you know almost $2 billion, and they put down a half a billion dollars in cash. They they were going to do this deal with, uh, with Qatar, and then the Qataris uh, rejected it. You had Saudi Arabia... The United Arab Emirates and other countries announcing this blockade of Qatar and and saying, well, they're they're really the ones behind all the terrorism in the region. What's the connection with the the Trump administration policy, Jared Kushner, his properties and the targeting of Qatar? Yeah. Immediately after that uh, blockade was announced, Rex Tillerson, then the, the secretary of state, you know, publicly called for it to end. The blockade is also impairing U.S. and other international business activities in the region and has created a hardship on the people of Qatar and the people whose livelihoods depend on commerce with Qatar. The blockade is hindering U.S. military actions in the region and the campaign against ISIS. President Trump uh, came out and, and said, well, actually, you know, Qatar deserves what it's getting because, you know, they've been Uh, funding terrorism, and this absolutely needs to stop. Nations came together and spoke to me about confronting Qatar over its behavior. So we had a decision to make. Do we take the easy road or do we finally take a hard but necessary action? We have to stop the funding of terrorism. Tillerson came to believe that this was a statement that had been drafted uh, by Yusuf Al-Oteba for Kushner and that Kushner delivered it to the president. And the, the Qataris have since come to believe that if they had taken the uh, offer that was on the table, that none of this ever, ever would have happened. Well, and, and you had uh, Chris Murphy, who's a senator, Democrat from Connecticut, on uh, George Stephanopoulos' program uh, in one of the Sunday shows this week. Uh, where he said the following. We could not understand why the Trump administration was so firmly taking the Saudis' side in this dispute between the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Qataris, because the United States has very important interests in Qatar. At the top of the list are thousands of U.S. troops that are stationed in a base there. And so to so firmly take the side of the Saudis against the Qataris, um, potentially resulting in the downward spiral of the Qatari economy, put thousands of Americans at risk. If the reason for this, if the reason that this administration put U.S. troops at risk in Qatar was to protect the Kushner's financial interests, um, then, uh, listen, that's all the evidence you need to make some big changes in the White House. Alex Emmons, uh, your response to what Chris Murphy is saying. 
well, he's right. I mean, it it really looks bad because there's only one way to understand it. And the way to understand it is that it, it certainly appears to be corruption. It appears to be a kind of retaliation that uh, Jared Kushner is willing to go through because um, they didn't get this loan. Uh, so, so corruption really is the only word that can describe that. Alex, uh, the the long term agenda of Mohammed bin uh, Salman uh, and MBZ as well. What what is your reporting indicating of what is the ultimate game that they're playing here uh, that involves potentially using Jared Kushner? I think it's to secure their own power, to secure their own power for a long time and to continue to enjoy the backing of the U.S. And as they continue to do more and more extreme things, they will need more and more extreme people to back them. Uh, And I think the Trump administration is the perfect example of how that plays into their strategy. Uh, Ryan Grimm, just a final question. What happened when you went to the White House to try to get comment from uh, Jared Kushner on, on this story? Oh, yeah. They uh, they referred me over to his personal lawyer, which is an interesting moment uh, in our kind of uh, journalistic history here. Like, it, you know, as we look back on this years from now, I think uh, the moment when, you know, the White House started referring, you know, basic questions about the conduct of senior advisor, son-in-law Jared Kushner to Kushner's personal attorney uh, will we'll wind up being kind of flagged as like a moment like, okay, the, yeah, it's something definitely unusual was happening here. And I went back and I said, you sh- you, sh- you guys sure? You know, no, no comment from the White House proper on this? Said, no, no, just talk to, talk to Abby Lowell. Uh, and Ab- Abby Lowell is a, is a very, very busy man. He's Kushner's attorney. He's so busy that he has his own uh, spokesperson who is, uh, you know, insists on being identified in the press as not as Kushner's spokesperson, but as the spokesperson to Kushner's attorney. Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 very unusual. You know, just for people that don't follow this stuff that closely, you know, you 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 call the White House, uh, you know, under the Obama administration or even under George W. Bush's administration. And you say, you know, we we're trying to understand why official X did action Y. And, you know, a lot of times they won't comment or they'll give you some milquetoast statement, but it's very unusual to be to, to have the first response be, you're going to have to talk to the lawyer that's representing them in the Russia investigation. <laughs> yes. Uh, this, this is about UAE yep. and Qatar. What, what is it? Huh? Why are you? I mean, yep. it's really it really is to me one of the the most important aspects of the story that you guys broke in a sea of really important revelations. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. And, and, and when I. Uh, reached out to him directly, and he 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 said the same thing. He didn't say, you know, talk to the you know the White House spokespeople. He said, talk to my PR guys. Right, and uh, and in fairness to uh, Jared Kushner, uh, here is the uh, the comment that uh, the spokesperson for Kushner's lawyer, not his White House lawyer, but his lawyer in the broader probe into Trump Russia. This is the comment from the spokesperson for Kushner's private lawyer, Abby Lowell. Some questions by the media are so obviously false and ridiculous that they merit no response. This is one The Intercept should know better. Ryan Grimm, thank you very much for joining us. Got it. Alex Emmons, thank you as well. Thank you. Ryan Grimm is the Washington, D.C. bureau chief of The Intercept. Alex Emmons is an investigative reporter in our D.C. Bureau. Their story is called Saudi Crown Prince Boasted That Jared Kushner Was in His Pocket.
From its beginnings, punk music has always been a disruptor of the establishment, at times a disruptor of all establishments. At its best, it has featured a passionate and creative pushback against authoritarianism, authoritarianism in a lot of forms. And as a music genre that gained ground in the mid-70s, punk was and still is largely portrayed in broader society as a white guy thing, with few notable exceptions. But our next guest says otherwise. Alice Bag was the lead singer and co-founder of The Bags, one of the first bands to form during the initial wave of the punk rock scene in Los Angeles. And she says that scene was very different than the dominant portrait of the punk world. That scene had women, people of color, and queers at the forefront, leading and influencing punk music in L.A. Alice Bag is a musician, an author, an educator, and a punk feminist. She has a new album out. It's called Blueprint. My name is Alice Bag, and I am a writer, a musician, and active agent in my world. Both my parents were immigrants, and my father really wanted to keep Spanish at home, and he was confident that I would learn English at school. My parents played a lot of music. My father loved rancheras, which is this kind of Mexican music that you typically hear played by mariachis. And most of the time, it's going to be a guy singing it. But every now and then, there were, you know, women like Lola Beltran. Who were these Mexican uh, ranchera singers that were just very bold in their performances? And then my mother loved Mexican pop. It's very passionate and sweet. And uh, there was this one performer named Rafael who was actually Spanish, he wasn't Mexican who just emoted so much when he sang that I was transfixed as a child. I could feel every word he said. Another thing that was happening in my household that really influenced me was the fact that my father was abusive towards my mother. That abuse was physically aimed at my mother, but I feel like it really it filled the whole house and it affected everyone that was there. I feel like it's marked me for life. A lot of times, because my father ruled the house, you know, in such a firm, patriarchal way, when women would come into my house and challenge him in any way, it was really thrilling for me. I remember watching my sister-in-law like question my father about something he said and watching them argue about it and just feeling like, oh, someday I want to be like my sister-in-law who stands up to my father. She never cowers. And I also had an aunt who did that. And I think um, 
those were the seeds of my feminism. Those were the first experiences that I had as a little girl watching a woman stand up to the patriarch and like hold her own. And it was thrilling for me. And I wanted to experience that again and again. And, you know, it's sad that I'm in a position where I get to experience it again and again. But I really, I'm up for it. I'm up for challenging it. Because today was a day of history for all of Lanassa. Wherever they are, throughout Latin America, throughout Mexico, wherever brown people exist, today was a day of history. And from this day on, La Raza Mexicana shall be history. In 1970, the Chicano movement organized a march through the streets of East L.A., protesting the Vietnam War in general, but specifically the large number of Chicano soldiers that were being drafted. And they were not only being drafted in disproportionate numbers, but they were being sent to the most dangerous places. They were being sent to the front and coming back in boxes in larger numbers. Before the world, before all of North America... Before all our brothers on this bronze continent, we are a nation. We are a union of free pueblos. We are a clan. And it ended up, as most protests by people of color, are misinterpreted as acts of violence by the state. So we had riot police come out and start busting heads using tear gas on the population. I was at the Chicano Moratorium, but I was only 11 years old, and I grew up in East L.A., so this park is a park that I used to go to as a little girl called Laguna Park. And there were speakers and dancers. These little girls are dancing folklorico, and they had, like, food vendors. And it was generally, like festive celebration and a feeling of, like, unification and getting everybody motivated to fight the powers that be and to right this wrong. And instead, it turned, you you can see the riot police come in and start shooting the tear gas and people running and people being clobbered. And eventually it ended up with, like, you know, a lot of people injured, a handful of deaths, and specifically one death that was uh, Ruben Salazar, who was a newspaper reporter who looked favorably on the Chicano movement and wrote about it in, in, you know, more objective ways. And he was shot. in high school. I was going to an all-girls school in Montebello, California, and uh, we had off-campus lunch. And during that off-campus lunch, I, you know, I didn't have a car, so I just walked to the liquor store, which was like two or three blocks away. And I usually would look at their rock magazines. I was really into rock. I was into glam rock. 
And I saw one that I hadn't seen before. It was called Punk Magazine. And it was from New York, and it talked all about the New York punk scene. This was early in 76. I bought that magazine, and I started, like, seeking out punk. And I graduated high school that year, and I started going out to more shows in Hollywood, more concerts. And one day, I went to see a band. And as we were standing outside, we saw these kids that were hanging out. We started talking to them. I'm like, are you waiting for the show? And they're like, yeah, we're the opening band. We're going to play. But we've never played a show before. And it turned out that it was a band called The Germs. It was just an out-of-control performance. But they left an impression on me. I mean, I just thought, like, what guts, right, to get up and do that? So everything was, like, something I had never seen before. And the music was melodic, but it was also, like, really fast and frenetic and exciting. Just such a huge moment for me to feel like, I know that I can do that. I want to do it. Give me the stage now. Hand me that microphone. The early Hollywood LA punk scene was really really steered by women, people of color, and queers who hadn't found visibility in other music scenes. But the thing about the punk scene is that it wasn't just a music scene, and it wasn't just a genre. And we didn't know that at the time. At the time, we thought it was about the music. But as we grew and became a community, we realized that it was really about a community and about learning how to harness our power. was written because the gender gap in the United States for women in general is said to be at about 80 cents on the dollar. So it's about 20% gap. But that is for all women. And Asian and white women have a narrower gap. Women of color have a much greater gap. They make much less. I decided to stick with 77 because I felt like it's probably closer to what I make. Once you have a blueprint for yourself and a blueprint for your communities, that you can also have a blueprint for what you want the world to be like. And that we need to get to the point where we are active agents in our world, where we steer the direction that it's going in because it is off balance right now. It is going in the wrong direction, and we need to gather our numbers, gather our strength, figure out how to fix it. It is a long fight that we're in. We're in for the long haul, so we have to take breaks, be positive, take a deep breath, hang out with other people who you love, who replenish your energy, 
and then we can go out fresh, we can ring the bell and get back in the ring. Alice Bagg is a singer, songwriter, musician, author, educator, and feminist. She spoke to our producer, Jack DeZadoro. If you want to learn more about the contributions of women in punk music, check out Alice's website, where she features a collection of her interviews with women in the L.A. punk scene. You can find that at alicebag.com. And don't forget to check out her newly released album, Blueprint. You can find her on Twitter, at Alice Bag. One last thing. I recently gave a speech in Madison, Wisconsin. And afterwards, a young kid came up to me in the book signing line and asked me to sign his book. He said he was an avid fan of this podcast and of The Intercept and in a big way, Glenn Greenwald. Then he began to rattle off the names of some of my Intercept colleagues and recent stories that they did. And he was a pretty impressive kid. His name is Charlie Graboy, and he's 13 years old, which makes him our youngest documented fan, our youngest known fan. Well, Charlie was in New York City this week with his parents, and I invited him to stop by the Intercept office for a tour and to join me in the Intercepted studio. I think every generation has that moment of whether it's the Vietnam War or World War II or World War One, or now all the wars in the Middle East or the war at home against terrorism, whatever that means in a sense, whatever, however you define it. So I think every generation has their moment to make things right. Charlie Graboy is a 13-year-old eighth grader in Madison, Wisconsin, and perhaps a future member of the Intercept team. That does it for this week's show. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Tal Molad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Emily Kennedy does our transcripts. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.